This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been a fan of Victor Laval's since Slapboxing with Jesus, and that was um, more than a minute ago. Yeah, and I do was. actually have a paperback that has an $11 price tag on it, so it really was more wow. than a minute ago. Yes. But here's the thing. A lot of folks know you, Victor, because of all of the stuff you've done very recently, The Changeling, and a lot of comic books, and now Lone Women, which I am madly in love with. I adore this book. But dude, you left Manhattan. You left New York. We're I in left New York. <laughs> far behind. I left New York and I left the century. All uh, of it. Yeah, all of it. All of it. Okay. So would you set up Lone Women for listeners for us? Because I, I am so in love with this book, but I don't want to give anything away. And I'm going to ask you to stay spoiler free too, as you describe what you've done. So Lone Women is the story of Adelaide Henry, who is a Black woman farmer from a family of uh, farmers in California in 1915. At the very opening of the novel, we see her fleeing her home, her, the farmhouse that she grew up in after something terrible has happened to both her parents. She flees California and goes all the way to Montana because even though she's been a farmer down in California, she secretly held on to this dream of going out on her own and becoming a homesteader in Montana, something that was actually historically possible for a Black woman in 1915, and not just a Black woman, but for lone women in general, well, at least some lone women, it was possible. And so she travels up to Montana, running away from everything she's known. And all she brings with her is a large steamer trunk that has a very big lock on it. And she refuses to let anyone else open it, because when people open it, people die. Right. It's a very good premise. <laughs> It's a little bit of, and I say this, I was a huge, huge fan of the Little House in the Prairie books when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Growing up in Massachusetts, I desperately wanted to live on the prairie. I wanted a sod house. I wanted to have to like string a string between buildings so I could find my way home in a blizzard. I wanted all of that. Right. I'm not sure I want Adelaide's trunk. Right. Boy, yes. I want this story. No, no, seriously, this story is fantastic. And these characters are great. But I have to ask, what took you into the past? What took you to Montana? Because I know what took you to monsters, and we're going to come back to that piece of it. But how did we get to the basic idea of lone women? Uh, well, the, at heart of all this is just uh, that by chance I got invited to the University of Montana to do a reading. And I have a practice that I've developed, which is that if I go to do an event in a place where I'm guessing I probably won't return to. I like to buy a book of local history okay. uh, and bring it home with me. So, because going to do an event usually means like a day of travel, then you get there, then you visit a couple classes, you read a story, go out to dinner with the faculty, and then you you fly back home the next day. So you were there, but you weren't, you know. And so buying the local history book feels like a way to get to know the place. And so I went to the University of Montana bookstore. Mm -hmm. And they had a local history section. And so I was just browsing through it. And I came across this book called Montana Women Homesteaders, A Field of One's Own. And so I appreciated the Virginia Woolf play on that, right? And I also was like, um, I didn't know there were women homesteaders 
like really at all. It, you, your, your Little House on the Prairie comparison is a great one because, of course, I knew that there were in the sense that like there were wives and daughters. Uh, but my narrative of homesteading and of, quote unquote, taming the West was white dudes on wagons, white dudes on horses, white dudes on foot. And the whole point of this book was that it was about women who didn't come out there with anyone and wanted to stake a claim, have land that was their own. Many of them maybe wanted to even leave behind the lives they did have for various reasons. And this was the place they wanted to come to to try. And I was fascinated. Uh, So really, it just began with that. Like I was just interested and I was just reading the book. But then I wrote to some of the faculty I'd met at University of Montana. Just by chance, I said, like, have you ever heard of these women? And some of them were people who are new transplants, came there just for the job. But some of them were people who had been born and raised in Montana, and none of them had heard of the lone women at all. And so that's when I said, oh, so it's not just that I'm just some New Yorker, some naive New Yorker who doesn't understand this thing that everyone knows out West. I said, if they don't even know about it, then maybe this is a story. Yeah, because I didn't know until I read this, and you sent me down a rabbit hole. Oh, I, good, I, good. You sent me down a rabbit hole. There are books arriving on my desk probably oh, in the wow. next week that hopefully I will get to read all of instead of just pieces. But unfortunately, sometimes it's, you know, you do the piecing parts. But sure. I had no idea. I had no idea. And one of the things that I love about what you've done with Lone Women, too, is you have put Black and Brown and Chinese people, mm-hmm. and Japanese people, back into American history where we have always been, but we get left out of those narratives a lot, or we're put into a very specific piece of the narrative and we never come out. I mean, anyone yes. who's seen Deadwood knows that apparently laundry and feeding bodies to pigs. That's, that's it. That was, and I was, that seems a little limited. And very little personality even within that. Right? Right. right. So, yeah. I mean, even if that's the job, who's the person? That's the question. No. And I don't think that was Deadwood's interest. No, no, yeah. it really wasn't. I mean, I should have been kind of excited to at least see a familiar face. But at the same time, I was like, really? Yeah. Okay, here we go. I mean, for you, did you start in California? Did you start with Adelaide and her family in her trunk before you got to Montana? Or did you work backwards from Montana? It was a little bit of working backwards. Like okay. I, uh, because um, one of the things that was true in most of the history I read, like um, there's the historical record, blah, blah, blah. And then there's also a good number of those, some, some of those women kept journals, you know. But e- one of the things I found so interesting was even in their quote unquote private journals, they didn't tell the truth. Right. Like they, it's not like what we consider the truth today, where someone would write down there, here's every single intimate detail of why I'm doing what I'm doing and all the rest. And so, what that meant was number one, in theory, you could piece together some things. Like they might say, I've come out here. uh, Mrs. Friday says, I've come out here uh, and I've met a lovely woman named Mrs. Monday. And we've decided to uh, stake claims right next to each other. And just build one cabin that we will share. Okay. We are the best of friends. And you go, okay, I think maybe I have an idea mm-hmm. of what's going on. But even in those journals, they're not going to say, this is my partner. This is my lover. This is my, it's just not going to happen, you know? Right. And so in a way that could be a little frustrating because you say like, oh, I wish I could get the, the real 
gritty details of why people made these choices. But the fun part in a way was that it allowed me to say, well, then maybe anything is a pop is a reason for right. someone to come. And so then I kind of said like, well, what would be the reason that they would come? And I was interested at the time in the idea of like family as a, as a curse, family as a burden, maybe in part because as I'm getting older, I have older family members, I have siblings who are getting older. There's going to be some caretaking that is probably involved. And so these things are starting to be on my mind. And so there's a part of me that had the fantasy of like, oh, what if I could just leave all of them and just go do something else? But then the part of me that hopefully is mature says like, even if you left, the responsibility would still be there. And family mythology is something that you've always played with. Even yes. when you were doing sort of the literary realism, right? In the, in the, the two early, let's, the first couple of books, you hadn't quite embraced your love of genre the way you know. That's right. And stylistically, I mean, in terms of the beautiful sentences, of course, those are all there, but the monsters were a little more contained. Let's put it that way. But family mythology is a lot to carry around. And, you know, in some cases, we're still sort of poking ourselves in the eye with this stuff. And lone women, you've got a lot of characters who are saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to do that. But on the flip side, we've got some members of the town that, <clears throat> yeah. Well, but, you know, I did think like <laughs> all of them in my mind, like all of them were wrestling on solo with the same question, which is just what do I do with either the burden of family or what do I do with the found family that I've made? And, you know, and that like through the course of the book, even though it's not a very long book, people get to feel lots of ways yeah. about family. It's not till the end that we sort of see the people who can come to a healthy place of understanding about what one does with not only family, but also shame, which is like a big aspect of the book. Like in a way, they're the ones who find a way to triumph. And the ones who hold on to the idea of either control or hiding one's shame or hiding one's secrets, it's kind of like those are the ones who can't survive because that stuff kills you. I have to say the ending was very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Is very satisfying. I'm so happy, and I—I I mean, I must say, I'm—I'm I'm saying this as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, I, that is really, really my wife's doing. The ending went through like a few versions, and like yeah. the first version was the grimmest version. That was like the door; no one gets out of here alive, kind of thing. And then I even felt like I can't—I can't do it. It's too much. And then another version was maybe what would be the more typical thing, which is like, okay, you have a few winners, a few losers. Some of the people you like are going to lose, blah, 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 blah. And then I was talking with my wife about it, and she just said, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, like, uh, this was 2018 when I'm working on this. She said, women are losing enough in the real world. I'm not interested in seeing them lose in a story. I'm just not. And so don't do it. And I was really like, okay, uh, I don't know how to pull that off. You know, like, uh, and then I realized, you know, because there was a part of me that fell into that trap of thinking you can't have happy endings in, in like serious stories. But then I realized like you can have hard earned happy ends. You can have qualified happy endings. And that to me, that's, that's as much life as like, there's no hope and everything is terrible. Sometimes that even feels less realistic. I think a satisfying ending too doesn't necessarily have to be happy. I think it has to For sure. Fit. The narrative and the characters, and I just, there was a little bit of whooping. 
as I <laughs> There was a I'm little so bit of whooping just because <laughs> it couldn't have gone anywhere else. I mean, there were a couple of moments, a couple of different moments where I was sort of back on my heels a bit in the story. Yeah. And then I was like, okay. And I loved the pacing because I never knew exactly where you were going to take me. And I, I've been reading you long enough to know that there's going to be a monster. <laughs> You're going to surprise me that there are going to be references in the book where I'm like, oh, right. He studied yeah. Mary Gordon. Right. <laughs> you know, there've been other interviews with you where people have just been like, let's just talk about all of the monsters. And it's like, yes, let's talk about the monsters because I think what you do is very cool. I mean, I remember reading The Changeling for the first time and thinking, I just read a novel about trolls and changelings and it happened in New York and I believe every single word of it. <laughs> right. Which I is believe every amazing. single word yeah. of it. And, and, you know, ultimately it's a metaphor for parenting and being terrified of parenting and all of these other things. I'm perfectly happy to be an auntie. So, you know, yeah. that tells you where I fall into the whole <laughs> spectrum of it. But I want to talk about the art that goes into this and the balancing of the monsters and, and the metaphors and the sentences. Cause you write some sentences that, I think plenty of other writers would be jealous of, but sometimes the sentences get lost behind the monsters. Right, right. Well, but that's kind of you to say, and I'm really glad that that comes through. But, you know, if my sentences had to play second fiddle to monsters, I wouldn't feel so bad about it. Yeah, I get it. You I know. Get it. But, uh, but I do love the kind of books where it's almost like you have to read, a, you have to go back over something to go, oh, part of the reason that worked is because of what was happening. But it was also that, the writer was doing something, you know, they, whether it was the language or the pacing or the, the the tone, the mood. And you realize like, oh, yeah, right. That's the kind of hidden hand that is making me go along with monsters or making me go along with this very atmospheric and moody Wild West or whatever it might be. You've got the idea. You've been reading this book on women homesteaders in the last century. You know roughly what you're playing with. We are going to come back to shame. You're working backwards from Montana into California, but I want to talk about the creation of Adelaide because she is great. She is a fabulous character, and she has a thing for Anne Bronte. <laughs> yes. And there's a very specific reference that comes up a couple of times. And again, this just it feels like something only you could pull off. I end up reading The Tenant, <laughs> Wildfell Hall, because I was like, why does Adelaide love this book so much? It is, I will say, it was her favorite book. It yes. may be the only book she has, but it is her favorite book. Okay. Brontes, really? Well, I mean, you know, you like uh, what I kind of loved is like the idea that, uh, number one, that she's the least known or loved of the Brontes, right? So it felt like, okay, we go with the the surprise pick there, right? But that that book in particular is like in many ways so forward thinking for its time, right? In particular about the ability for the wife to 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 leave a life that is abusive with a drunken husband who, who also cheats on her. Every he's verbally abusive within the narrative. That's a bold uh, choice, and then within the time periods, this is the eighteen hundreds. It's an astounding, like it was a super controversial book in its time because it dared to, number one, write about this stuff at all mm -hmm. that women were living through. And then two, that it dared to show she got away. She left him. 
it feels like the right thing. It was a good thing. It was a safe thing. And so I, I like the idea of like the Brontes are such gothic writers. And I did want some sense of the, rather than it, it takes place in the West, but I always thought of it as a gothic novel, my novel. And so I said, okay, if it's going to be one of the Brontes, which one will it be? And then I looked back and I said, I think it should be Anne, number one. And then I think it should be this book because it just hits everything that my book is about while not being literally just a retelling of that book, you know? So it just, it just struck me as like the perfect. And I did, I did think like it would be the kind of thing where a reader might go, which one is this? (laughs) And that that might be fun. (laughs) It was very much fun because Honestly, I had re- there's a joint biography of the Bronte sisters that I had read billions okay. of years ago. And I knew Anne existed and I knew like her sister, she had to publish under a man's name. Yes. And I think I vaguely knew this book even existed, but <laughs> I hadn't. It was one of those things because I, you know, I was a history major in college. So I missed some of these bits that other people caught because they were English majors. And so there's a little bit of catching up sometimes for me. Yeah. It's a really feminist novel. Yes. It's a wildly feminist novel. And I was kind of like, oh, right. I forget sometimes that just because people are writing about, you know, marriage and other assorted things, that it's not necessarily, oh, here we go again, kind of thing. Yes. Great. We're running over the moors after a bad boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is that too, but it's not only that. It's less of that than one might expect from yes. a book. <laughs> Certainly hers, for sure. For sure. Okay. But Adelaide, where did she come from? <laughs> you know, this, so this is like a, such a deep cut thing that it's uh, it's almost silly. But like, um, so I had a novel that I published in 2011, I think, called Big Machine. And in that novel, there's a character named Adele Henry, who I love very much. And so I basically was like, what would her great grandmother be like? Thank you for doing that, because I didn't want to assume. Yes. I didn't want to assume. I was like. I think there's a connection here, but I'm going to wait for Victor to tell me if there is yes. or not, because I, okay, thank you for making my day. I'm really yeah, happy. Yeah, I'm so happy that you picked that up. Yeah, so it was like, I tell you, like uh, the thing that I actually sold to my editor, at the time the idea was three novellas, but like this expanded a little bit, like three uh, novellas. So it'll, now it'll be like three short novels and it'll basically be Adele's great-grandmother, who is Adelaide. Adele's grandmother, Adele's mother, and then we reach, and it's not, that doesn't matter to anybody. Like, it's not essential to the stories. But in my head, the idea is like, I just want to trace the line of like the Henry women. And the idea that like, they've always been something special. That was like this super deep cut thing in there. But it was a because I really loved Adele, and I kind of wanted to write about her again. But I wasn't thinking of writing like a sequel to Big Machine or something. So I said, well, maybe I could go backward. I was thinking that. And then I said like, okay, so then her name's, she's a Henry. And then I was like, well, if this is Adele, how about if she's Adelaide? And then I really was like, okay, Adelaide Henry, that's who I'm with. And then I started just saying like, all right, spiritual predecessor to the woman we meet and love Okay. And all of a sudden it started to sort of like open up in all these fun ways. That is so wild. Like I said, I didn't want to assume. I really (laughs) didn't want to assume. I was like, maybe this is just a name he really likes. Maybe (laughs) this is a family thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I never know. It's true. And stuff sometimes burbles up that maybe you weren't even thinking about. For sure. 
you know, it's your fifth book. But does this mean we might actually see the other two novellas in some other form at some point? Or are we yeah, just... Yeah, I'm working on... No, no, I'm going to... Okay. Uh, like, <laughs> I mean, I, they had a like a very sort of one paragraph, you know, Lone Women is about the homesteading women. Then the second one is about the some next phase that I'm still like reaching into. And then the next one is um, right before Adelaide. I mean, Adele. Uh, or potentially... If worse comes to worse, it might be she's a niece or something like that. And then it's not like straight line, but it is that Henry Blood kind of thing. I will take what I can get. <laughs> I'm not picky about familial relationships. <laughs> but I want to go back to shame for a second because, you know, the opening line of this book is so good. You know, the, uh, the people who live with shame and the people who die from it. And I sort of want to argue that Adele is a third version. She's the one who grabs it by the throat and kills it. <laughs> and kills it. I like that. I like, like that. She really does. And, you know, shame for anyone, regardless of gender, shame is a thing that a lot of folks wrestle with. And, it, and it can do terrible things. And it really is. But the way you play with it in this book and the way Adele grabs it by the throat and kills it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she really. Adelaide, excuse me. She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. It's not the first time you've come sort of head on at a very big, serious subject like shame and and the legacy and what it can do and and just the realities of it. Sometimes monsters make it easier, but you still have the human piece. You can't let the monsters do all of the talking when it comes to this. So I think maybe you knew from the beginning that that was going to be part of this story. Yes? I definitely knew. So when I was talking about like family responsibility or family burden or whatever, what was definitely tied to that was maybe one of the central feelings I would say of of my family, which is shame. So to be as transparent as possible, we have uh, a good bit of mental illness in the family Mm -hmm. across various generations and various people. Sort of a refrain for our family was like, but you're not going to talk to anybody outside the family about these things, right? right? You're not going to tell these people, oh, we have a diagnosis. Someone has a diagnosis of this or something. This, even if people like the thing that was part of my process of like writing the book, but also growing up, I think was, I thought because we never spoke of it, people didn't know. And as I got older, what I realized was people knew something was wrong or off or troubled but because we wouldn't speak of it then they just were like oh they're jerks right like that's what they thought you know oh they're they're just this family that's very hard to get along with uh right like not everyone but like that could be the narrative and for me part of the undercurrent of the book is like whatever a family's shame is there's that sense that like we're keeping a secret and i kind of wanted to get across that idea like you're not keeping the the messed up part of it is you're not even keeping a secret, right? People know something's wrong, something's off, something's whatever. It's just that they don't know what it is. But when you're in the in the secret, you think we're doing great. And so I wanted that to be about part of it was like her having to face like what was it even for? I kept the secret for what? Like everyone knew, and we kept people away, so I got nothing out of this. Yeah, keeping up appearances really doesn't work for anyone ever. No. I mean, we get great books out of it. We get good movies out of it. Like, yeah. we get good art out of people's attempts to keep up appearances. But I can't think of a single 
and maybe this speaks more to my taste in art, but I can't think <laughs> of a single example where keeping up appearances helped anyone. <laughs> I just... Well, but I think that's the but the fun the fascinating thing, right? Is like um, I would say more surface level or popular entertainment, right, whether it's right. books, TV, movies, or whatever, yeah. inevitably is more popular. But I think part of it is because it's selling the illusion that like this is how you live too, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you make jokes with your friends. Yeah. If this is and this, you all go home and have a nice dinner, but nobody yells, nobody drinks too much, nobody right. cheats on anybody, nobody's uh, in foreclosure. Because if you bring those things up, then people go, oh, that was a downer. I, I don't want that. There's a reason it's, it's so desirable mm-hmm. for people. It's like just eating candy all the time. You're going to get sick. Here we are talking about family mythology, but you've also created a world of second chances. And it's not just Adelaide, but it's also, there are some folks, in, I'm thinking of the Reeds. Yes. Who folks will meet. There are characters that are desperate for second chances who don't quite find them. There are some characters who do get second chances. And the way you present that search, you know, regardless of who's who's doing the search, these character arcs, they're really fun. They're really wild. And part of me needs to know if you're plotting this out in advance or you're just letting yourself be surprised. Because I really am not kidding when I say there was, you know, there was some vocalizing as I was reading yeah. Lone <laughs> Women. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly happy that that was the reaction. And that it wasn't vocalizing like curses at me. No, no, uh, no, no, no. But um, I'm the kind of writer that writes very quickly. And so I write many, many drafts. Okay. I write quickly. I surprise myself. And then if it's a good surprise, like that keeps, keeps uh, sort of growing and, and giving benefits to the story and allowing for new complexities, then I realize like, oh, that's a good surprise. And now I have to go back and make it look like it was always on purpose. Yeah. It feels like you're a little more playful in Lone Women than you have been in previous books. And Granted, this is not the first time there have been monsters in your work, but yeah. this just feels a little lighter. It feels a little faster. Yeah, I guess playful really is the word I'm looking for. Because I really, there was, I was laughing a lot, but also I was like happily surprised when wild stuff happened. And <laughs> that's really all I can say about that. Yes. Away. And there were some moments where I was like, oh, wait, that's not what, oh, I thought, oh, it's like you zigged when I thought you were going to zag. And that as a reader is impossibly satisfying because you don't always get that. Yeah. Especially when you read a ton, sometimes you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. And then it does happen. Right. But let's go back to craft for a second, because you're doing multiple drafts. You're writing it quickly. You're going back, you're correcting. But you do always sort of have some kind of endpoint in mind, right? Like, I'm not talking about the physical end of the story, but it's like, yeah. well, I'm trying to get from point A to point B, or I'm trying to get from A to F, and maybe I'm going to hit C and E, but I don't know if I'm going to hit B. Right. Or is that too sort of mathematical and clean? Uh, Well, I would say it's more like emotionally. What I'm thinking is Adelaide is keeping a secret. The midpoint of this has to be that the secret is exposed. And then the end point is, and what does Adelaide do with the truth? So it's thinking like that. and and. What I'm in the earlier stages, what I don't know is, will she be destroyed by the truth? Mm-hmm. Like, is that kind of book I'm writing? Or 
Will she do what needs to be done to acknowledge the truth and become a person who lives in their truth versus a person who's been living with their shame? And what would that look like? And in some ways, that was the more surprising choice because I didn't know what that would look like. But I liked the idea that maybe someone could have all their family stuff exposed and they could learn it didn't kill me. Okay, so then what do I do? Right. And that that would be kind of an illuminating and interesting journey for the reader, too. Well, for this reader, certainly. Yes. I don't think I'm alone in that, Victor. I really don't. <laughs> But why do you write? I really don't mean this in a glib sort of way. Uh, To pay for the home that my wife and I have for our kids, to leave them some money when we die, and maybe pay for them to go to college and for them to come out of college with no debt. As the son of a, a secretary who came here from Uganda, I would feel like I'd won all the American lotteries if that happened. And so I suppose that's what, maybe that's the truer thing is that's why I publish. Maybe that's why I publish. And then the reason I write, I love telling stories. I really do. I think I started wanting to write when I, maybe by 10, 11, 12, I was a truly independent reader, picking my own things without my mom or having any, uh, if I'm honest, any interest in what I was picking up. So that was very freeing. But when I was reading those stories, the thing I would be thinking sometimes is like, I want to do this to someone. Or I want to give this to someone. Like, this has been so fun. I want to give this to somebody, right? So in that way, it's fun. And I I look at the writing as a way to transfer joy to someone else, if I do it well. When did you start to realize, though, that you wanted to write about monsters more than you didn't want to write about monsters? Because, again, those first two books are wildly different. Yes. Everything that's come since. Yes. But when did you start to make that switch? Well, I guess the thing I really would say is that I started writing when I was 12, and at 12, okay. it was full of monsters. Right. So, okay. so, in fact, like I would say the journey I was on was like I learned to be ashamed of wanting to write monsters when I was in college, uh, right? Because I was take, I was an English major. I was reading serious literature, serious literature from more than 200 years ago had lots of monsters. I mean, Shakespeare's got uh, fairies and all the rest in it. Certainly, if you're reading like Gilgamesh or you're reading like the Iliad or whatever. Beowulf. Beowulf. uh, uh, Dante. It's nothing but supernatural stuff. Um, Or it's tons of supernatural stuff that is speaking to the real world. That was okay. But the minute we got to like the American shores or the 1800s or something like that, Certainly the 1900s, it became ridiculous in quote unquote, in quotes to genuinely have these things in your story. At least that was the message I felt I was getting based largely on what we were reading and what right. was being taught to me as like the serious business. I never consciously said this, but somewhere in me, I said like, oh, I would like to be taken seriously as a writer. I guess I'll write realist stories. And so the first two books are, I think there's some weird stuff in there. There's some funny stuff in there, but they are absolutely realist stories. And then I got to the end of the second realist book and I was really, I hated writing. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you hated writing that book. The book itself, I feel like I poured everything into it, but I was like, especially that sec, especially the novel, first novel, but even the, the stories, 
I can see myself laboring under the delusion that serious writers write about misery. Yeah. That's what is art. And so those books are, they're funny at times. It's bleak humor. Mm -hmm. So it's all misery all the time. And so the idea that I was going to dive back into like another book of misery Mm. uh, was uh, not compelling. And then also I was writing very autobiographical books. So I had written all the way up to finishing college. So the next book would have been about being an MFA student and, you know, like who wants that book? Not me. Not from me, at least. Honestly, no, because we got Big Machine instead, right? Big yes. Machine was the third, Big right? Big Machine yes. was the third, yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes, it was a gift. I uh, uh, I, I, I have to say, like, uh, I mean, this is a, it's an interesting, uh, I think it's an interesting story. It's, so I've had the same editor for every book except yep. the first, a wonderful editor named Chris Jackson. Yep. And so he came on board for The Ecstatic, my first novel. Right. Clearly, he was like, I believe in you, and I'm here for the sort of absurdist, realist, Black novel. That's what we're doing. Yep. And then I came to him and I said, I got a novel about Black secret societies <laughs> and uh, and monsters. Mm-hmm. And he was you. He really was like, just get out of my office. I just don't want this uh, <laughs> uh, at all. It was really, he was like, I'm not buying this book. And so then I wrote him a letter. And I said in the letter, if you don't buy this book, it's going to be one of the biggest mistakes of your career. Right. You better buy this book. Okay. Because I'm because this is where I'm going. Okay. And if you want to be in this, blah, 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 blah. And it was like, uh, nobody else was asking for that book. So it's not like I had anywhere else to go. <laughs> but I was trying to make him see, like, I mean this. Right. And so then he came back. And his he for whatever, for his own personal reasons, he's got a particular bias about the sort of supernatural. He's, you know, one of those people is just very much like, I just... I just don't believe it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he came back and he said, all right, look, here's the compromise. You're going to write this book. And the entire time I'm going to say to you, why? Why is that what's happening? Okay. And you need to come up with real answers. It can't okay. just be because it's magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right? and that's honestly, that's fair because yes. there are a lot of books in the world where it's like, because. Yes. And I realized that's you know, not enough of an answer. It's, it's just not enough <laughs> unless you're I mean, well, the, I mean, in a way, like uh, his and his point was you could write that book where it's just like because is the answer. Yeah. He said, but I won't buy that book because I would never read that book. And so you might find another editor who would, but I'm not that person. He said, but if you're into the idea of saying here's the fantastical and it's grounded in the real. Mm-hmm. Then I'll do this with you. And it really was like the perfect blend. So every book. I find myself, we have a phase where I give it to him when it's in hopefully strong enough shape. And then we just have a whole conversation, which is him just being like, why does it have to be this? <laughs> and I'll go like, here's what I'm thinking. Da, da, da. And he's, and then he'll punt, he'll hit back. He's like, here's three totally realistic versions of that exact same theme. Mm-hmm. Could you do that? And I'll say like, no, because I need this thing to be able to fly. Right. And he goes, okay. And so we hash out, like, how do I get him to climb the ladder up to here? But also, but then how do I build the ladder so he can climb? And that sort of explains how I came to be a longtime reader of yours. <laughs> honestly, I, I, I will say, like, I'm not reaching for genre. For, I, I'm not. And, yeah. But there are things that I appreciate. And one of the things... I'm really looking for when I'm reading is narrative voice. Like if the voice is there, I will follow you. And I know when I'm picking up a book 
that has your byline on it, chances are really good stuff is going to happen where I'm going to be like, okay. (laughs) Which I'm not always willing to give that over to other writers, but partially it's because you're so grounded in a New York that I recognize, you know, NK Jemison did a very similar thing in her cities duology. duology. Yes. Where I was just like, I recognize this New York. I get this New York without a doubt. I would like to never see Chitulu on the, (laughs) you know, right. If you can help it. Yes. Please know, but do I believe it could happen here? Absolutely. And, you know, that's not necessarily where my taste runs, but I'm also, I want narrative voice and I want language. I need language that makes me buy into what you're trying to do and who your characters are. And it's not just enough to have stuff happen. I agree. I agree. I need, I need the whole package. Yes. The reader. So I'm guessing language is the thing you read for first and then you're going from there or are you like me and you're reading for narrative voice first and then language? I would say voice matters to me even more than language because okay. there are uh, in the sense that I mean, I get like in the sense that there are some folks whose voice is super distinctive, but I couldn't necessarily say like, here's every beautiful sentence right. they make, you know, uh, or even that they necessarily write beautiful sentences mm-hmm. quote unquote, but that there's something about like that voice just sort of like kicks you and you just go okay this is great like no one else could have written it that's maybe that's what i really feel like yeah or if i fall in love with the book it's because i really feel like this author had to write this and no one else would have done it like this have you had a chance to read sequoia nagamatsu's how high we go in the dark not yet he does some really cool stuff in that book okay he does some wildly cool stuff in that book and well i think you'd fly through it but i also think that you would appreciate sort of what he's doing balance he's the balance he's pulled between voice and language and also structure he does interesting stuff he plays with time in a way that i'm just like okay and format you know you could argue that it's a novel you could argue it's a novel in stories you could argue it's linked stories i just didn't want it to stop nice Okay. And so I'm kind of like, I don't really care what the format is. I yes. just want to read a cool thing. And you apparently are the person I need to hear from. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check that out for sure. I mean, we're Twitter friends. And, and I know I've heard nothing but great things about the book. But I just hadn't had a chance to read it yet. Changeling is coming to FX. Uh, no, uh, Apple TV. Oh, Apple TV. I'm so it, sorry. It, no, no, no. It, it, it was originally okay. at FX. But I guess I'm, I'm getting an education in the ways of these things where it's 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 home turned out to be Apple TV. Do we have air dates? Do we know? Not yet, but okay. I'm hoping it'll be this fall. We're in the tail end of post-production. I would be thrilled if it was this fall. What's that like for you, though, handing over a really personal story to, yeah. I mean, some very talented creatives. Please don't misunderstand yes. me. It is a very different form of storytelling. You actually, did you write any of the teleplay? The I did not. Okay. I did not. I mean, my understanding is you hand over the project and everything gets stripped out so that the actors can do what the actors are going to do. So a lot of what you do as the creator gets turned into, what, a 60-page script, depending on how long each episode is? Well, I will say, I I mean, as time goes by and I hear more and more of these stories, I do think that is the usual way. And it's what right. you're, that's what you're signing up for kind of thing. Right. Maybe that's like the Stephen King with Kubrick. You get the shining you get, you signed over, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And and King gets to be unhappy about it as much as he likes as well. But in my case, um, the woman who is the show creator is a woman named Kelly Marcel. The minute she signed on, she 
called me up. She lived in LA at the time. She called yeah. me up. She said, I'm flying to New York. We're going to have lunch. I mm-hmm. said, okay. So we sat down to lunch. We had a couple hours lunch. And the whole her whole point was like, uh, two things was number one, this isn't my show. This is our show. And I want you to stay involved. Oh. And so she really advocated for me. I think when we signed the deal, I was part of the deal was I was a co co-executive producer, but it was just a title, you know? And so she said, I'm going to, I want you to be an executive producer because I want you involved in a very serious way. And then the second thing she said was like, I'm not going to take anything. Like, I'm going to tell you, like everything in this book I'm going to use. Oh, wow. And what I'm going to do is her her perspective was, you do an amazing job telling Apollo's story. Mm-hmm. I want to add Emma's story. The show, what's great about the show is going to be, you definitely have Apollo's narrative, but Emma has, a, you spend a lot more time with Emma and her narrative. You get Apollo's mom, Lillian, you get a lot more of her. It was either the limits of my powers or the way that I set the story up. I was in Apollo's perspective. And so that's that. Mm-hmm. That's what we're telling. And her right. point was like, the show doesn't have to be in one perspective. Right. So how about all the stuff where Apollo learns later what Emma was doing? What if we just do it? And we just see it. And we see what she was going through. And oh. all this. Kind of, so I was really spoiled. Okay. Because she just added, like, in particular, the first six episodes of the first season mm-hmm. is like almost beat by beat the book. Oh, that's a lot. It's a lot. And the, yeah, the that's great. dialogue, yeah. uh, tons of dialogue is the same, all this kind of stuff. I feel like I got uh, a prize, you know, like, a, like um, and then on top of that, she said, if you're up for it, if you want to, I want you to be on set every day for the New York shoot and then move to Toronto and be on set for the whole summer oh, wow. for that shoot. And so I was on set for four months uh like in every way kelly was the showrunner and there was never i think the other thing that one of the other reasons sometimes that um the authors get kind of pushed out is because the showrunner or the director whoever is like this is my show right and i don't want any battles but kelly is a real force of nature and so there was no question that it was her show in her confidence she was like all you'll you being there is only going to make it better so come. She'd reach out to me. She'd be like, I want them to be reading such and such, but I don't know what they should be reading. Can you look around at some classic literature and come up with a couple of things for me? And, and then I'd send over some stuff and we'd talk it through. And then all of a sudden that's in the show. And so she was such a generous and confident captain. I got to spend time with all the cast. I spent time with all the crew. I was, I worked with the directors sometimes. I got all this experience and it remained i think a really supportive and loving relationship between me and kelly like it was just great is all i'm saying i mean your relationship with your editor too sounds a little more collaborative yes in some ways and so the idea that you just sort of slid into this collaborative role in a different medium makes perfect sense to me but it also makes me wonder do we get to maybe watch lone women too because i would go there in a second (laughs) i would totally Uh, go there (laughs) <laughs> the most I can say is it's funny you say that, and uh, I am working diligently as okay. we speak to make that a reality. It's in a place where I think that's a genuine possibility because we're making some very cool things have been happening with the potential for the show. I'm very happy to hear that, but that's also not going to necessarily interfere with the next book, right? 
So. It definitely will. It definitely ah, will. That's okay, the only fine. thing I will say for sure. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it'll be uh, for good reason, for good reason, okay. you know. All right, all right. <laughs> Victor, thank you so much. It's always really good to see you. I'm sorry Same. I don't see you more often, but Lone Women is out now. If you haven't read The Changeling or any of the backlist, including Devil and Silver or Big Machine, really go back and check out Big Machine. I'm Now I'm on a really big, big machine kit. <laughs> Victor, it's so great to see you. Thank you. Always again. a pleasure. Thank you, Mimi. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Lone Women. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I've got my two fantastic booksellers with me, Jamie in Leewood, Kansas, and Madison in L.A. I'm going to have you two take over. So, Jamie, I'll have you start us off. What do you got for us? All right. So uh, I am off the bat a big Victor Laval fan. And when we got the advanced reader copy of Lone Women, which is a fantastic perk of working at the bookstore, or advanced reader copies, um, when that one came into the store, I snatched it up that day and then I spent all night reading it. Um, one night last week. So I was very excited to to see that he was going to be on the podcast. When I was reading it, I was thinking about the mood a lot. So the book I'm going to recommend today is not a horror book, but I think the mood of isolation that he created in his book is really evocative of this, this um, book by C. Pam Zhang called How Much of These Hills is Gold. This is a book from a couple of years ago. I really loved it. It's a modern Western from a point of view that a lot of us have not had the opportunity to read before, and that is of Chinese immigrants in the Wild West Gold Rush era. And it's a fascinating mix of historical fiction and Chinese mythology, and it corrects kind of the omission of these people in much of our American West story. The book follows two siblings, um, Lucy and Sam, and they are very young. They're 11 and 12 years old. And they are so recently orphaned that the book begins with them carrying their father's body through Gold Rush era California, trying to survive and find a way to bury him properly. As you can imagine, this is not a safe place for young orphans, especially for two orphans who look like Lucy and Sam. They have to grow up really fast in this landscape, and they have to do that while contending with racism, with poverty, and while trying to bury Ba, their father, who was not really necessarily an easy man to love, like a lot of gold prospectors, uh, his luck never pans out. Their first challenge is to find some coins to place over Ba's eyes when they bury him. And they're so desperate to complete this part of their family's burial ritual that they attempt a robbery to get the coins. And from there, the rest of the book unspools, and it's told in this really dreamy, hypnotic prose, and it's got bits of Chinese mythology and um, Zhang's own imagery woven in. Uh, one of the stories that Lucy and Sam tell each other in the novel is about the majestic tigers that are roaming the hills that the gold men believe that they own, which Sam sees as just this sad joke. Nobody can own the hills. This book is going to challenge your thinking around history of the land and who is left out of these stories that we tell. And as well as our kind of American tendency to relegate the actual literal landscape, the hills, the trees, the animals, 
to scenery instead of holding them up as essential parts of the story. So anyway, that's my recommendation. How much of these hills is gold? Madison, what do you have for us? That sounds like such a good one. It sounds like such colorful imagery. It makes me excited. When I was thinking of a book to recommend, I went with How to Be Eaten by Maria Adelman. And this book, it's a twist on fairy tales, which I love. So she kind of brings forth kind of all the negative themes we see in like our fairy tales, like childhood favorite fairy tales, kind of like exposes the anti-feminist themes we see, kind of like the negative aspects of some of these such beloved tales. And what I love is it's a modern take on all these fairy tales. So it's it's women getting together for a trauma support group in a basement and they talk about all the trauma they've experienced but each of the five women are from like the classic fairy tales so you have Bernice she is there for a fallout of dating a psychopath and then you have Ruby who was once devoured by a wolf and survived Gretel who questions her memory of being held captive in a house made of candy Ashley who is a winner of a Bachelor-esque dating show. And then you have Raina, who has a love story that is there to shock them all. So I'll leave hers a little bit of a mystery. But it's just this modernized fairy tale, and you kind of see how toxic these fairy tales were. And I just think it's like just such a beautiful retelling that you don't normally see, which is why I like loved it so much. And then you have like the provocative like intense horror aspect which I think is why I love horror like it's so the imagery is out of this world I loved it so that is why I would recommend how to be eaten so that was my pick this week nice picks both of you thank you so much but that is all the time we have please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode you can also follow us on our socials at Barnes and Noble thanks for tuning in everybody happy reading bye Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.